Welcome to Health Matters, Sonoma's weekly program devoted to health and well-being. Each week through interviews, editorials, and listener participation, we will explore topics and issues of contemporary medicine and its relationship to the lifestyles of our community. Our goal is to provide you with information and resources to help you achieve and maintain what you deserve, a happy, healthy, and productive life. I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California, for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. And welcome back to Health Matters. Dr. Ned Hoke today joined uh, by Dr. Daniel LaRoche. Am I pronouncing your, your name properly, Dr. LaRoche? Yes, that's fine. Thank you. Uh, okay, good. <laughs> well, Dr. LaRoche, it's really such a, tre- a treasure to have you because, of course, in the, the topic, some of the topic we're going to be t- talking about today, of course, having to do with the COVID uh, situation, uh, particularly vis-a-vis the eyes, but also vis-a-vis the issue of COVID and the consequence in black and brown people. So that's our two, for our listeners' benefit, are sort of two general areas of, of inquiry or in discussion, really, are uh, the issue of black and brown people and the situation of COVID and, and how that's different and how we need to hear about that. And then also um, uh, the the matters of, uh, well, other matters of eye protection as well, because one, one of the things that I do have in front of me here is some very de- you know definite ideas that you have about uh, necessary protections for the eyes, given the unique situation we're in. So given that I want our listeners to know right away that you are in New York, uh, you are, uh, uh, your, your company, Advanced Eye Care of New York, you're the president uh, and you're the uh, director of, of Glaucoma Services, but you're also, I guess you're, a, uh, you're connected to NYU and you're also connected to the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary at Mount Sinai, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Well, Dr. LaRoche, let's start right away with the idea of, of um, given that we're, ta- you know, we're in a situation with you of a certain kind of advocacy, that's what brings you to us. So maybe you could help us begin to understanding a little bit about you in terms of how you began your advocacy in the way that you are doing it today. Well, um, I'm an ophthalmologist and glaucoma specialist right. in private practice here in New York City. I've been in private practice for the last 25 years. My offices are located in Harlem and Southeast Queens, which are predominantly African-American, Afro-Caribbean neighborhoods. So um, uh, and as a specialist, I've been treating glaucoma and preventing blindness from glaucoma. And so I'm an advocate on educating people uh, about glaucoma and getting their eyes checked once a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some new technology now where we're able to prevent blindness from glaucoma with earlier cataract surgery and trabecular bypass surgery. Uh, the standard of care is medical therapy for glaucoma to lower intraocular pressure. But we have a lot of people in our country that don't have health insurance. Um, there's a lot of poverty. 41 million people uh, are in poverty and can afford expensive medications for their eyes. And and so in trying to address glaucoma, uh, and many people that have some of these types of issues, uh, we've been able to see that earlier cataract surgery and trabecular bypass surgery is able to help prevent blindness from glaucoma, mm-hmm. help to lower the intraocular 
pressure in the eye to prevent uh, loss of vision earlier on. Half the people that have this technique uh, don't need eye drops anymore, and the other half maybe instead of three or four eye drops, maybe can get it by, by with one to two eye drops. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the levels very advocate about mm-hmm. in terms of educating about getting their eyes checked right. uh, to help prevent blindness from cataracts, glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy. Right. Uh, with respect to COVID-19, um, one of the issues that COVID-19 has um, uh, uh, shined a light on is the healthcare disparities uh, with higher death rates amongst minority communities across the country, uh, and black communities and Afro-Latino communities across the country. Uh, that's been on the news uh, basically daily with uh, higher levels of death rates, and in some areas as high as three to four times higher in black communities compared to white communities. But healthcare disparities is nothing new. Um, if you go to PubMed.gov and you look up healthcare disparities, you know, probably about 50,000 articles written on healthcare disparities. We've known this for quite some time, but our healthcare system has been very slow in addressing this. And uh, there are solutions to this. We do know what a lot of solutions are for to help address this, to make our country better, to make our country healthier. But there's uh, not been as much um, will to make it happen. Well, how does how does what you just said? It, it, it all or in any way integrate with the idea of Medicare for all or the kinds of things that Bernie, Bernie Sanders talks about or that general genre of, 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 of social policy. Are you then, by saying what you're saying, are you, are you saying then that you're an advocate for that kind of a transition in terms of the, the medical business environment or is there, is there some other way, of, in your opinion, of, of headed toward a better spread for medical services for all? Is it, is it, is it mostly a, is it a money problem? I guess it's kind of my question. And is it a social policy question that then could be rectified by a, a, like a Medicare for all motif? Or is, do you have some other thoughts about that? Yes, um, it's multifactorial. Um, we do need some form of universal health care to ensure that everyone has access to health care. Um, it could be a form, and when you go to travel to uh, developed nations like in England, Canada, uh, even uh, Cuba, uh, you know, that has a much lower GDP than we do, they have all much better health care outcomes mm-hmm. because everybody has some sort of basic access to health care, uh, which is very important. Unfortunately, we don't have that here in America. That's one. Uh, two, uh, we have to really eliminate uh, structural race-based plantation capitalism. Uh, what, am I, what do I mean by that? Well, the average net worth of the white household is about $171,000. The average net worth of a black household is only $17,000. Wow. So that's a tenfold difference, okay? And with increased wealth, you have increased health, better access to health care, okay? And what has contributed to that? Uh, we all have made great progress to get rid of slavery, we have all helped to make great progress to get rid of uh, Jim Crow segregation. But we have not really addressed the social and legal policies fully with respect to housing, education, criminal justice, health care, and the workforce. And so this is where you have a lot of systemic remnants of racism 
uh, throughout here that have to really be dismantled to really help uh, create greater equality and greater opportunity for everyone in our society. And so a lot of there, there are a variety of different things that we can do. We have to look at every aspect and structure wherever we're at. I mean, and I'll give an example for myself. Sure. I'm an eye surgeon. Right. Okay. And we know that cataracts, glaucoma, and diabetic retinopathy are these causes of blindness within the African-American community. We know there are 41 million blacks in the United States. Guess how many black eye surgeons there are in the United States? <laughs> Only 400. Uh-huh. Not, only not, 400. Not very many. Okay. So only 400. So what does that mean? Well, that means that African Americans, because we still live, unfortunately, in still a, quite a segregated uh, America, where some people live on one side of the railroad track and other group of people live on the other side of the railroad track. And so with that, African Americans have decreased access to health care, with decreased access uh, to black physicians and in my case, to black surgeons that can help prevent blindness from glaucoma with earlier surgery, education, and treatment, okay? No. Uh, and then, so that that's one of the things. That's just my specialty. Right. And that doesn't include the other 27 scientific specialties within medicine, okay? And that doesn't even include addressing the wealth gap issue. And that doesn't include addressing the universal, universal health care coverage issue. Right. So all of these issues, all of these issues are intertwined. Mm. Another thing is um, the minimum wage. Okay, we have to pay Americans a living wage. In New York, uh, we have a minimum wage of $15 an hour, but in some parts of the country, the minimum wage is as little as $7 an hour. $7 an hour is not gonna get someone out of poverty, okay? Right. That keeps somebody in perpetual poverty. And, and that is going to create health care disparities as well. So we have to change policy to create a more affordable living wage. And then for those people that don't have a job, perhaps you pay them half of the minimum wage so that at least they can have food and food security and access to food and not um, malnutrition that contributes to health care disparities and decreased access to food and things of that nature that, you know, makes us a sicker nation compared to everyone else around the world that's, that's rather developed. So are you, are you, part of what you just said kind of goes to the sort of the basic living wage argument that we're hearing. Uh, it's in the public domain, and now people are talking about a, a floor, a certain basis that everyone gets a, a, little, a little bit of something. They, everybody gets a, a, at least a, a, what's they call a basic minimum wage, and uh, whether they're working or not. And and so it sounds to me like you're sort of advocating some version of that yourself. Is that would that be fair to say? Well, yeah, because the reason for that is one, anything that's provided is going to be a reinvestment into the American economy. Right. We've already seen that with the stimulus. I mean, Donald Trump, uh, you know, uh, and the Congress approved a four trillion dollar stimulus. You know, because of the COVID pandemic. Right. And you know, people from, you know, business owners to the average American, you know, all received a financial incentive and, uh, and financial payment. And that was just reinvested into the American economy and the stock market's at record highs. Uh, and so we just need a safety net those for those people that really don't have it. So at least they can 
function, maybe have some food to eat, and try to figure their way out of their situation, mm. you know, out of poverty, to get a position, to get a job, uh, just to transition out. And so, and that's just going to be reinvested into the American economy mm-hmm. uh, in that respect. So, and that's just a humane thing to do. I mean, just like <laughs> other countries, other countries are doing it right now. Right. I mean, other countries are doing it right now. We're not, we're not creating something new. You're not, not inventing. Uh, you're not, not reinventing the wheel. No. So exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, but we just have to have the will to do that. So, are you? You're, do you feel yourself aligned to any particular uh, publicly recognizable version of what you just talked about? Because I think our listeners, I mean, I think, you know, our hearts are always, I mean, I guess I have to imagine that many of our hearts are touched by the story that you've just told in terms of the, as the sweeping, the, the sweeping tale of, of we, we recognize that, after all, you're there in Harlem and you're in uh, other places where, uh, poverty is a very everyday thing, and 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 of course, much what happened with the the liberals, uh, I guess since Clinton, that the sort of the poor people kind of went away, and they were sort of ruled out of the equation. Everybody everybody was called middle class, and then all the issues, all that careful work that LBJ and others had done on on you know really facing up to some of the poverty issues. So all a lot of that stuff sort of went away, or and or at least was uh, was downsized in a fairly substantial way. So, are are you in a way you know beside touching our hearts, are, are, which I think is a good thing, but are you in a way advocating a, a, a new a re- revolution of of the type that uh, the Poor People's Campaign, the the sort of things that took place, the Civil Rights Campaign, that in terms of things that were happening during the uh, 60s and so on, are you imagining or, or advocating some you know, reestablishment of, of, of various, various government programs to come in and, and take, 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 a lot, take a, on this challenge? Uh, government is definitely going to be part of the solution. Okay. Um, corporations also are going to be part of the solution. It's going to have to be a public and private partnership. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, with government spending, with corporate spending, you know, diversity and addressing poverty should be important aspects of both. Right. Okay. It's a, it's a... Uh, all corporations, all corporate boards, you know, should have a diversity that reflects the fabric of America. Okay. Okay. Um, and depending on where the company is based, I mean, if you're in New York City, you know, uh, New York City is 25% black, uh, 25% uh, Latino, uh, and about Seven percent Asian, and you know, you just have a you know some leadership that reflects the, the fabric of the city. Okay, uh, you know, f- women make up fifty percent of America. You know, all corporations should have significant women presence on their leadership boards. Right. Okay, when you have a diverse leadership at the top, you're going to make better decisions uh, for your company and and grow uh, both nationally. And internationally. Dr. LaRoche, I need to stop you. I need to stop you there. We need to take a break. We're talking to Dr. Daniel LaRoche. He's the uh, president of Advanced Eye Care in New York. We're talking about uh, social inequality and, and uh, black and brown people and in, in the world of in the COVID world. We're we're going to come back and talk more about COVID and talk about more about social rebalancing. So please stay with us. We'll be back with you in just a moment. And welcome back to Health Matters, Dr. Ned Hoke today, joined by Dr. Daniel LaRoche. He's the uh, president of the Advanced Eye Care of New York. He's an ophthalmologist, and he's a, 
a, a glaucoma specialist. He's with us today to talk about improving health outcomes for the people he sees in his work and also his advocacy for the, the general betterment of providing medical care for uh, the, 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 uh, the worlds that he lives in in, in terms of his, his, his area in New York. And of course, Dr. LaRoche, you were right there in the, in the thick of the, of the New York crisis when it, with COVID. And so I'm, I'm certain that that must have touched you in a certain way. Do you want to share with our listeners a little bit of, give us a little bit of your anecdotes of like what it was like for you to sort of live through the process of the COVID arrival in, in New York City and kind of how did that touch you, if you wouldn't mind sharing some thought about that? Uh, sure. Actually, it touched me pretty directly because um, I got infected with COVID back in February mm-hmm. uh, when it came in. I was flying back from Florida from visiting my folks at JFK Airport. Uh-huh. And when I was at the airport, a lot of people around me were coughing. Mm. I was like, wow, you know, a lot of people are sick around here. Mm. And then when I got home from the airport, you know, I started having hacking cough and fever and shortness of breath. And um, uh, I didn't get sick enough to the point that I had to be hospitalized, but it was close. Mm. And I just self-treated myself with a lot of Robitussin medication. I just thought it was a bad flu, but in retrospect, because of the amount of shortness of breath that I had, and even after it resolved, I was short of breath still. I couldn't do my level of exercises for about three or four weeks. I realized this was probably COVID. Mm. And so so we got blindsided uh, because JFK Airport is a gateway, and a lot of people coming in from Italy, and the virus spread throughout the airport. Right. And Brooklyn and Queens are highly densely populated neighborhoods um, in the area where a lot of the workers go, right. family members go, and, they're high dent- and people go to households where in a two-bedroom apartment, it could usually be four to six people there. Mm. So we got hit really, really hard. Yeah. Uh, but the, the fact that we did shut down and, uh, and uh, you know, um, we were able to really lower that peak and people started to wear their masks. Uh, there was good daily media education here. We're wearing a mask and social distancing and implementing hand washing and things of that nature. So we were able to get a grip of it. Uh, but it definitely affected uh, inner city communities a lot greater because of the density. A lot more black and brown people were on the front line workers uh, working at Amazon. Where there's a huge Amazon distribution center right near JFK Airport. Right. And uh, a lot of those workers got affected as well. So um, it definitely disproportionately affected black and brown communities that live in higher density areas. And so the thing is, is that what people can do is one, uh, people could do personal responsibility by uh, eating healthier, uh, eating lots of uh, fruits and vegetables, baked chicken, baked fish, and having a low body mass index and get rid of obesity. That will reduce high blood pressure and diabetes. And these are all comorbid conditions that you know increase your risk of death with COVID-19. But then there's social policy things that we can do to have everybody have greater access to health care with more universal health care and better policies to prevent wealth inequality mm. and plantation capital, mm-hmm. like I spoke about a little bit earlier. Right. And so um, we were open. Our office was open part-time throughout the pandemic to address emergencies and, you know, help see patients with urgent eye care visits. And we were doing telemedicine mm-hmm. and making our office COVID-19 safe with social distancing and hand-washing and putting uh, plastic barriers uh, uh 
between the front desk and patients right. and having air filters in each room as well. And so uh, most of the hospitals uh, are handling that very well uh, to, to reduce that. It's quite unfortunately sad to see that across parts of the country, there's still a lot of people not wearing masks and not social distancing and holding large gatherings uh, during this pandemic because that's going to lead to death and it's completely preventable. You know, a lot of here, here on the West Coast where I am, uh, I hear a lot of people talking about the hoax virus. And I hear a lot of people, uh, and some of these people are reasonably well educated, and they're thinking that the somehow this is a, a big fear campaign for uh, certain segments of society to hope to further degrade the uh, the rights and privileges of ordinary citizens and drive more capital to the you know to the corporate suites and so on. But they think they think of the virus in terms of it being a a, uh, a a poorly represented or inaccurately represented pandemic. And I think you would say, I, I'm putting words in your mouth and forgive me for doing that, but I, I have to believe that being where you've been and knowing what you know, this is no hoax. Oh, no, the virus is not a hoax. I mean, there's almost 200,000 people dead from the virus. Right. And uh, many families across America that can personally testify with the loss of a loved one knowing someone that's had the virus and died from it, uh, it, it it's getting to the point that it's going to touch every family in America. I've also lost an aunt uh-huh. uh, from this COVID-19 was in a nursing home. Mm. And so it's it, it's definitely not a hoax. And so whoever's saying that, you know, they're wrong and they're erroneous and they don't even deserve a platform to continue to talk about that. Right, <laughs> exactly. Well, what... what the, Another thing that people are, are one, that that I hear from some people is they they, they feel this way. They and I'm in, be interested in your perspective on this. Um, they say that since the way the virus activates itself in terms of creating a cytokine cytokine storm, they're saying uh, they're saying by lowering your your body's inflam, infl, inflammation. I'm going to get to a, a point that has to do with colored people. They're saying that by by lowering your your inflammatory index, get getting your C-reactive protein down and and that kind of thing. They're saying that that's one of the best things you can do to sort of support yourself and make yourself stronger by by managing the the the, the general C of your sort of pro-inflammatory environments. Now, and and how they how they say that respects to uh, black and brown people is they're saying that these people have been are threatened so commonly that they're their threat meter is on constantly, so they're in a constantly pro-inflammatory state, and as a consequence, they're more likely to be damaged and get a more serious effect and, and be less able to manage the situation because of their chronic pro-inflammatory state. How, how do you respond to that, that, that theory? Well, I, I would say that, you know, biologically, we're all the same, black, white, Chinese, we're all pretty much the same. We all have evolved from the uh, first African woman, Lucy, right. in the area known as Ethiopia today, 200,000 years ago. Right. So I think we're more alike than we are not alike. Right. But I do think that there are differences in people who are wealthy and people who are poor. Uh, if you're in a bracket of 171,000 
median net worth and you have health insurance and less stress and you're employed and you have resources, uh, you're going to have a better health care outcome, better stability, probably live in a less dense area that will probably all favorable for a better outcome with COVID-19 compared to if you're an income of 17000 right. uh, which there's more whites than blacks at that level of income. But percentage-wise, uh, there are greater health disparities in blacks for uh, um, a lot of the decreased access to social resources as well. Um, and, and so I think that's where the differences lie. And, you know, those people that are poor are definitely going to be more stressed, uh, more probably more obese, have decreased access to health care, less right. education, right. live in a higher density area, be more likely to be an essential worker with great exposure to the virus. So those, it's a multifactorial thing. It's not one thing. Oh, of course. But we know that these things exist. We know that these things exist. And so there is some element to, you know, definitely being more stressed. But I, I don't know if I would say, you know, you know, being more stressed can increase your obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes. Um, but that can occur in all ethnicities. Right. That, are, that are in a poor situation or work in that type of situation. But it could be a little more stress, too, because right now with what we're seeing with a lot of killing of unarmed black men and uh, right. a lot of violence in inner city cities, that combination and insecurity and fear and safety, uh, it, it's a unique time in our history. And so that, that fear doesn't help either. So in New York, where you are, um, we, I mean, are you, I mean, are you like... A lot of us, where I live anyway, we're looking at the news media showing these uh, these uh, just god awful situations in terms of the young man shot in the back and so on. I mean, this is just so extraordinarily appalling. Uh, many of my uh, neighbors and friends feel this is a, a a policy matter that is having to do with the election and the the issue of Donald Trump and trying to raise the ire of his voters so they'll actually show up at the polls and re return him to office. I don't know if, if you choose to res respond to anything of that type, but are, are you, where you are, are, are people receiving this current uh, news cycle uh, violence dynamic having to do with black people and, and brown people? Uh, are, are you receiving this as, as, a, as a political matter as 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 well as just uh, the 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 sort of the bad luck of of the time. Well, I mean, you know, the type of violence by law enforcement against black people is, is not new. Right. Uh, it's been going on for hundreds of years. Um, the thing is, now what's more new is that we have cell phones and we're capturing it on video. Ah. Uh -huh. uh, so that. That's one. Before you weren't capturing a video. When you didn't have the video, the police would say, oh, he was resisting arrest, and that was it. You know, uh, that was the accepted fact. Right. But now we have video, and so you're able to actually see these things on video. That's one. Two, I think compared to other countries, uh, American law enforcement is not as well trained. In other countries, sometimes you need a college degree to become a police officer. Mm -hmm. You require two years of training to become a police officer. You learn how to de-escalate a lot better. And I think uh, some of our police officers, you know, just don't have that type of training. And, um, you know, that's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And I think we could definitely get a better trained uh, police force. 
And then, unfortunately, like in every profession, we have bad apples. I mean, right. in our medical profession, we have bad doctors and doctors that lose their licenses and their ability to practice medicine. You know, in the legal profession, you have bad lawyers. And in the police profession, you're going to have bad cops and bad police officers also. The majority of cops are great cops. They work hard. They come into work to serve the community. The community appreciates that. But there are bad apples. The problem is there's no accountability for those bad apples right now. That is um, they that... built the police unions uh, this blue line, this blue wall that does not afford accountability. Mm. I mean, you know, people, and so they're exacting like a lot of violence. Some of these bad apples are exacting a lot of violence in the compete on the community, and they're not being held accountable. And that's where we need the good police officers and the good police chiefs to tear down the blue wall of silence. To say, hey, look, because they know who the bad apples are. Mm. They know who the bad apples are. For example, the police officer that killed um, George Floyd, he already had 18 complaints against him. Right. Okay? So, you know, it's not like people don't know who these... I mean, how many police officers get 18 complaints and write-ups against them? Mm. So, you know, you could just look, okay, who are the police officers that had all these write-ups? Right there, you can start with them, and let's hold them really accountable. Mm. Where they can't... They, they either lose their position... And they can't be hired someone else, somewhere else in another police department. Simple things like that would go a long way to make our society uh, safer and to talk about something else besides these type of issues on the news every day. Right. Well, you, you also, I'm, I'm, I, in the literature I have about your, your intention with us today, is also you're, you're, you say that we should identify the white supremacist organizations as terrorist groups. And that's, there's a good in, good and interesting idea. That's just a sort of, I guess that's kind of a policy question, but do you have anything more to say about that? Well, you know, in Germany, for example, the Nazi party is illegal. And, you know, uh, white supremacy organizations are illegal in Germany. I mm. mean, they've learned from that experience that got completely out of control, the rhetoric that got out of control. And I think that, you know, we should have a similar policy here. I mean, I don't understand why organizations like the KKK are, are not labeled as a terrorist organization. The FBI has already informed officials that this is one of the greatest threats, domestic threats to national security. Mm-hmm. Okay? Right. And so that's from the FBI. I mean, I'm not making that up. That's what the FBI has said. And they want to deal with that, but certain forces not letting them deal with that. Mm. And then the FBI has said that the KKK and white supremacy organizations have infiltrated law enforcement. Mm. You know, is what we're seeing on the news every day, and if a result of that, and that type of infiltration, okay? Uh, And so, if, you know, there's no, I mean, that's a, a domestic terrorist organization, and it should be labeled as such and dealt with as such. I mean, there's no room for that in our society. Mm. You know, we've moved beyond that, and we need to acknowledge that. Uh, well, Dr. LaRoche, we need to take another break. And then I would like a, uh, for our listeners who are, have eye conditions, uh, I'd like to ask you a couple of eye condition questions after we come, from the, come back from the break. Is that okay? Sure. Sure. I'm talking to Dr. Daniel LaRoche. He's the president of the uh, Advanced Eye Care of New York. He's, uh, he's in New York and in, in Harlem. 
He has a, a long-term practice. He's also a graduate of, of uh, Cornell Medical School and, and did some, uh, is, is currently involved, uh, also connected to NYU, also got a bachelor's degree from NYU as well as now he's connected the, to the surgical center of NY, NYU as well. So it's Dr. Ned Hoke. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Please stay tuned. And welcome back to Health Matters. Dr. Ned Hoke today joined by Dr. Daniel LaRoche. And now we're going to get a chance to ask the doctor some uh, questions about the, the uh, medicine that he practices. And we'll, we'll, have, we'll maybe have some time for a couple more of his, his questions here as well. But it, in terms of the, um, you, you mentioned earlier when we were talking how that, that, that cataract surgery, or at least I took what you were saying, cataract surgery was the thing that you, one of the reasons you did it was to, to hold off the development of glaucoma. Is that a fairly direct path? Is the, are people with cataracts more likely substantially to develop glaucoma? Okay, that's a great question. Um, cataracts start really when you develop age around 45, 50. That's when the beginning of cataracts starts. Right. Okay, and that's an opacification of the lens in the eye, and the lens increases in size with age. And then as you go into your 60s, 70s, and 80s, the line for cataract development continues to go up. The same thing occurs with glaucoma. Glaucoma is a flat line until about age 50. And when you get to close to 50, then the line for glaucoma starts to go up. And there's a direct correlation between the two. The eye has a normal eye pressure of around 15. Okay, when you touch your eye, that's a, the normal eye pressure in the eye is 15. Right. The mean intraocular pressure in a patient with glaucoma is 18. And so when I'm examining patients over 50, I'm checking their vision, make sure their vision's okay, 20-20. I check their eye pressure. If the eye pressure is 15 or less, that's okay. I take a look at the inside of the eye uh, and make sure the retina's okay because diabetes retinopathy, diabetic retinopathy can affect the retina. And so those are the big three issues that face our society. And in older people, check for macular degeneration. But if the pressure is 18 or higher, and then I start to look very carefully for signs of glaucoma with the larger lens in the eye and or pigment of the lens rubbing up against the back part of the iris that blocks off the drainage angle. Mm-hmm. And then in those patients that are 18 or higher, and if they start to develop you know, signs of glaucoma with a higher pressure and or damage to the optic nerve, then I recommend earlier surgery with cataract surgery and trabecular bypass by opening up the drain to lower the pressure some more. Once we do that, we can bring that pressure back down to 15. We can place like a multifocal lens that allows them to see clear without glasses inside the eye. And really we can prevent glaucoma, cure glaucoma in some cases when you catch it early enough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you mentioned uh, the the drainage issue and co- coexisting with the uh, cataract surgery. So, are those procedures done uh, uh, at the same time? Typically, I mean, so you always kind of, or you tend to do them both at the same time to 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 manage the situation. That the cataract if a patient is patient has glaucoma. I'll do yes. That's my first. Uh, procedure I like to offer patients is right. taking a cataract earlier right. and, and, and the cataract operation and, and placing and opening up the drain and performing a trabecular bypass procedure right. can be done with about 20 minutes right. under local anesthesia right. at the hospital. You go home the same day and usually people are seeing much better, particularly if they have a multifocal lens in the eye where they can see distance and reading without glasses right. and the eye pressure is lower, they're seeing better and they're much happier. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a new technology that we have that's available. 
and can really uh, change the course of glaucoma for many Americans with earlier diagnosis and treatment. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of the the the, the theories of, of the development of, of glaucoma, there's the oxidative damage to the optic nerve. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure if this is a theory or it's probably a fact, but in terms of the re- reactive O2 species, in terms of the consequence of the optic nerve, do you have something to say about that and how significant do you feel that is and rele- relevant to the development of glaucoma? Well, that what, what, what um, starts before that is the elevation of eye pressure. Uh-huh. Okay. The elevation of eye pressure creates a toxic environment and starts to kill off cells. Uh, and, and with, with the oxidative damage to the retinal ganglion cells that occurs thereafter. And then the elevated eye pressure also uh, triggers a T-cell autoimmune response that destroys the retinal ganglion cells. And so we want to prevent that and try to keep the intraocular pressure normal. Uh, and so and the oxidative free radical damage that occurs to the lens in the eye as it gets larger. The lens in the eye gets larger with aging by about 30% uh, from sunlight exposure, from age-related change, oxidative data changes to the lenses in the eye that's worsened by smoking, poor diet, excessive exposure to sunlight. So you know, that's definitely, that plays a part of it as well. Mm-hmm. So in your practice, do you find yourself uh, proactively also suggesting any kind of nutritional guidance for your patients that are on this path of development in terms of either cataracts or glaucoma or both? Well, you know, we have an obesity epidemic right now in our country. About nearly, you know, 40, 50 percent of Americans are obese. Right. And so I always have a nutritional conversation with them because the eye is part of the body. And one of the things that I recommend um, is drinking vegetable juice. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorites is you get a blender, you put cucumber in it, about 85 percent cucumber, maybe a little bit of spinach and kale, a handful of blueberries or half of a green apple, uh, make a vegetable juice, and uh, I tell the patients to drink three 16 ounces. I make three 16 ounce bottles, and you can bring a bottle to work with you, uh, and then have one for breakfast, one for lunch, one for dinner. Mm-hmm. And then you can eat like a, a regular food that's healthy, like you know, salad, uh, fish, vegetables, chicken, and that often will help you lose weight. That will help you give uh, vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin E, uh, lutein and zeaxanthin for your eyes um, and help also strengthen your immune system in case you get sick with COVID-19 to help better off fight off COVID and get rid of the obesity. And so that's what I recommend in terms of nutrition and diet. Mm -hmm. And I also recommend exercise too by walking 30 or 60 minutes a day at least. Try to walk 30 or 60 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. And um, so, of course, that's always a challenge for some some people who are not used to doing that. At least that's my experience as a physician. I I find that uh, it always amazes me. Sometimes people will stop me on the street and they'll say, you know, the best thing you got me doing was walking. You know, and I, I always would, you know, one of my normal things also is exercise. But, but I just keep, I usually kept it, keep it simple. And I say, please, you know... Uh, 15 or 20 minutes walking at least once a day. And uh, people seem to really take to that, and it does seem to make a significant difference to their feelings of well-being. So so in terms of the, again, coming back to the nutritional thing, is there any any uh, any in the supplementation area that you actually support or recommend if, if a person, for instance, isn't obese, and, and you're, but they're looking to, to strengthen themselves and to, to give themselves a better shot at hoping to avoid 
the development of cataracts and glaucoma. Is there any kind of preventative strategy using nutritional supplementation that you recommend? I think all the essential vitamins and minerals are in the healthy foods that I mentioned with fruits and vegetables right. in particular. Right. Um, however, I do have some elderly patients who have a poor appetite. Okay. Or if someone has a comorbid condition, like if they have uh, cancer and can't eat very well, something to that nature, then I recommend supplements like multivitamins mm -hmm. uh, to help make up for the lack of nutritional intake. Right. That's when I will use supplements in that, in that capacity. I see. Okay, that makes sense. So now coming back to your your some of your rec your uh, what I'm seeing here in front of me, talking about uh, coming back to the education for uh, black and brown physicians, you're saying... Uh, it says eliminate sole reliance on standardized testing as citizens to be used at entry to magnet schools. Uh, that's not medical education, but that's just magnet schools. So talk about the standardized testing. I, I don't have children, so I'm not familiar with that particular situation. Tell us about that and kind of what you see would be a, a better improvement to that. Well, actually, in California, I think just today there was an article how California can no longer use standardized testing for admissions to their colleges. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because standardized testing is culturally biased um, and financially biased. Right. And, what I, and the way it works is like this. I mean, an example is, for example, if you use an SAT type of course. Right. Uh, okay. Um, people that come from households that make $200,000 or more are able you know, statistically, they do better than those from households that come in income of $20,000 or less. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Because they have the resources to take test prep. And usually those students also have the resources to live in better school districts as well. So when you're living in a better school district and you're able to get better access to test prep, you can do, you know, 10 or 20% better on a test score compared to other kids that maybe don't have access to that same school district or to the test prep. Mm -hmm. So that's cultural and class bias. And what that has done, that has kept a lot of minorities out of higher education. Mm. And I'll give you an example. Mm. In New York City, we have a school called Black Science. It's a magnet high school, okay? It trains all the future doctors, lawyers, and business people. And uh, New York City is 26% black. But at that high school, which is a magnet high school, because they use standardized testing to let kids in, it's only 3% black, mm. okay? Oh, my goodness. And so right there at that level, at the high school and, and middle school level, right there, because of standardized testing, it's keeping a whole group of people out to becoming future doctors and lawyers and business people, right. okay? Right. And so we have to change that structure around because it's extremely inequitable. There's absolutely no correlation between how good you do on this test and how good of a surgeon you're going to be. There's no correlation. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no correlation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is a fallacy that we have in our system that perpetuates this inequality that we have, mm -hmm. okay? And so um, that has to be dealt with. What we have to do is we have to change to our system where you take the cream of the crop students from every community, okay? Uh, like, for example, in New York City, we have five different boroughs, Okay, and you want to take the cream of the crop students from each of the different boroughs. Okay, 
So you, that reflects the diversity of the city. And let those students, the best of each of those boroughs, go to this magnet high school, get the prep and the training that they need, so that when you graduate, you'll de- graduate a diverse group of excellent people that could be the future doctors, lawyers, business people, and leaders that will f- reflect the city. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. And we need to do that across the country as well. So... Is it likely in the de Blasio administration of your city that you're going to do you feel do you feel progress is coming your way to that particular issue? Well, I think you know baby steps are being taken right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know we need to take a greater look at the complete system, both at all local levels, state levels, and federal levels, to address all these inequalities and all these old policies that have not been, you know, that were created, you know, sometimes decades ago uh, that have to be revamped, you know, to to create a more perfect union, you Mm -hmm. know, to create a more perfect union, to establish greater justice, you know, to ensure greater domestic tranquility, uh, and to provide for the general welfare of our society. Well, and, and, and to now we just have a couple more minutes, so I, I, I don't want to I want to leave our listeners with some very specific guidance that you have. Now, we in California are I'm, I'm circling back to the COVID matter. Uh, we in California have been uh, recognized as being an, in a surge for the last several weeks, and uh, so uh, you mentioned in literature that I have here in front of me about you. You say that that to, that there's a a reason for people to wear. Um, eyeglasses to to protect their eyes in, in, when they're, I guess, in, in public spaces. Do you have anything more to add, beside the what we've already heard, do you have anything more to add in terms of self-protective means for our listeners who, that, things that are relative to the, to the eye, yes, but also other any other particular guidance that you have? Because, of course, we have so people, you know, so, so many people terrified of the virus and, and staying home, and, and then, but, of course, then, then they, then they, you know, go out, and then, of course, then, then if they're not careful, then of course, then they encounter the virus, and then they have to deal with it. So, do you have anything other than the eyeglasses that's that's that might our listeners may not have already heard that you advise them particularly to protect themselves from the virus? Sure. Yeah, I'm starting to see that you know California is becoming a hotspot because I, I know we had our epicenter in New York. You know, California really had hardly any cases at all. Right. And so the thing is, is that what I recommend is one: if you don't have to go out, stay home. Okay. Right. And that's the, the safest thing you can do. Yeah. But if you do need to go out, if you do need to go out, and uh, or you're an essential worker, then definitely wear a mask. I do recommend wearing eye protection at the hospital. We all have to wear eye protection. That could be in the form of goggles, or an eye shield. And the reason for that is because that will reduce you touching your eyes mm-hmm. with your hands. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because a lot of times we touch our face, we touch our masks, we touch things, you know, we touch our eyes. And things that we touch, we can, you know, uh, come into contact with uh, a surface that's contaminated and to touch our eyes and we can contaminate ourselves. Right. And so that will minimize the risk of transmission. Also, in case... There are other people that are out there not wearing masks. If they're talking and they come close to you, like we have the subways in New York City. Sure. So people can get very close sometimes in the subways. So by doing that, that's another barrier to prevent someone from breathing on you, coughing on you, mm-hmm. or you know, particles in the air uh, coming around towards your eyes. So, so having an eye shield uh, and, and or goggles, that's just another barrier to help reduce the risk of transmission mm-hmm. and trying 
you know, to imagine I could touch your face and touch your eyes as well. Right. And then obviously when you get home, you could discard your mask, you know, wash your shield, wash your hands, change your clothes when you get home uh, to minimize the risk of self-contamination as well. That's what I've been telling people about, that, that when they get home, the business of changing their clothes. And I'm I'm surprised the number of people who resist that. I, I it just amazes me. Um, one other thing I don't know that you're aware of this. I, one one we had a guest on our show not long ago, a Dr. Quay from uh, actually from Taiwan, and one of the, he reported to us the uh, about the issue of using a, a salt spray on a, on the mask as as a, a way of improving the uh, the. Uh, the ability for the mask to be, after all, the, the mask is going to get changed. It's going to get, it's going to get moved around in the face, one thing or another. And, and the idea that the salt, with a little bit of salt in it, let's strike that, with a little bit of, of, of uh, soap in it, actually deactivates the virus should, should viruses last land on the mass surface. Because if, if viruses are last land, landing on the mass surface, then all you have to do is touch the mask, and then with your hand, well, then your hand is then contaminated and so on. And they're saying that this the salt solution uh, deactivates the virus. Are you familiar with that 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 concept of that theory? Well, what I recommend is like where people rotate their masks. Like mm-hmm. if you have like you know, let's say you have five or six masks. Okay. Right? Okay. Rotate one a day. Like uh-huh. put one, you know, just rotate it uh-huh. and put one in a dry spot somewhere. Right. And you know the air the air when the air dries over four days, right. it'll kill everything. Right. So Anything that's on it will be killed. Okay. So th- I just recommend people rotate their mask. I'm, I'm not sure about the salt spray because okay. if you do spray it with salt and it's wet, I don't know how usable it is right away. You no, it, ha- it has to. Dry. No, it has to be dried. It has to it has to it has to be. You spray it and then they it's dried. And uh, this was a this this was a, a researcher and, and he he said that what happened in Wuhan was one of the problems they discovered was that that with people moving their masks around, of course, they were contaminating themselves all the time. And they said if they, they used this salt spray, and they, they, then they, as like exactly as you say, they then let it dry properly, then the salt added a substantial benefit in terms of breaking down the, the, the viral particles. But I think your method, certainly the idea of having four or five masks and just letting them, parking them for several days, probably is just, just as adequate. So Dr. Daniel, yeah. Daniel LaRoche, it's really been a, a pleasure to, to visit with you and we're grateful for the time you shared with us, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Nice okay. Take care.